0: Well, um, good morning. I'm Pastor Brent. If you're new, wonderful to be here. It's good to be back. I was uh, last Sunday at a sister church in Faribault, filling in for one of the final weeks of the pastor's sabbatical at that church, that sister church. So that was really helpful to support them, support their pastor, Dan. Um, And then uh, additionally, another connection. Yesterday, I got to do a seminar at the Free Church in Northfield, for a couple hours in the morning and the seminar that I was leading there was about how the church should understand discipleship in our late modern post-Christian world. And one of the things I talked about in that seminar was the fact that the Christian faith makes exclusive truth claims. And yet we live in a, a, a time and a culture that's radically subjective where meaning is supposedly comes from within, or identity is self-defined, or where truth is relative. And the goal in our society, as is often said, is that we should allow everyone to find their own truth and then be tolerant and accepting of each other's version of what they believe is right and good. And yet the reality of this, this is is what so many of us face in the world today. It's more and more common and maybe you felt this pressure or you see this happening in your workplace or in your community, in your family, in your neighborhood. It's what the apologist Oz Guinness calls an ABC society, anything but Christianity. (laughs) All viewpoints are valid except the ones that have to do with Jesus. And this is a false dichotomy. This is what I've mentioned before. Missionary Leslie Newbegin. he describes the, the dichotomy, this, this false dichotomy between facts and beliefs. And he says that what we're supposedly what we need to do is that facts are, are public. Facts are public truth, things that all of us have to believe, all of us have to follow. But religious beliefs are private. They're things that it's just for you. As long as that doesn't affect me, then you can believe whatever you want. This sense that as long as you don't share it or impose it on others, that's okay. But what Leslie Newbigin says is that there's a problem with this dichotomy when your beliefs happen to be an exclusive truth claim with cosmic implications. Such as the truth that Jesus is Lord. That is no mere private truth. The rule and reign of Jesus, his exclusive saving work on the cross, his call to repentance and faith, the reality of the coming kingdom of heaven, and the, 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 these are truths that must be reckoned with by every single person on this planet. And this is what we're going to see in our text today is our passage this morning is the most straightforward and powerful proclamation of the exclusivity of Christ. On the one hand, it brings profound clarity to who Jesus is in the face of other claims to what is true. And yet, on the other hand, it's also a deep source of comfort and assurance for us as we live in a world that's not our home. So grab your Bible. Open with me to John 14. We're going to read verses 1 through 14 this morning. And if you need a copy of the scriptures, please raise your hand. I say this every week. I'd love to have you see the text for yourself to follow along and see God's words to you today. So John 14. We're in the middle of the Last Supper where Jesus gives his farewell discourse to prepare his disciples for his impending death. And Jesus had just told his disciples, I'm going to be leaving you and you can't follow me. So he's referring to his ascension into heaven after his death and resurrection. And so this is where we pick up the story right after he says uh, that he's going. And so this is where we pick up this dialogue between him and his disciples. Let me read John 14 verses 1 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may, be, you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the work I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Amen. This is the word of God. Okay, here's how we're going to tackle this. I want to show you through a series of statements that Jesus makes the uniqueness and the exclusivity of Jesus. So I'm going to use those two words deliberately, okay, because they're tied together. Because of who Jesus is uniquely, he is therefore the exclusive way to salvation. So, let's jump in and and look at those two kind of key ideas in this text. We're going to look first at the uniqueness of Jesus. So, let's go back to to verse 1 here and see how this passage presents the uniqueness of Jesus. Now, remember where we are in this account. Jesus is about to go to the cross. We already know from John 12, 27, and then chapter 13, verse 21, that Jesus is deeply troubled as he looks ahead to his impending death. And yet, what is so striking in this, ver- in this first verse is that he is the one giving comfort to his disciples who are troubled. It's, it's, in, in, in verse 1 here, it's the exact same word. That's been used already about how Jesus is troubled and now his disciples are troubled. So it's the same verb or the same word, but the reason that they are troubled is completely different. Jesus is troubled because he's about to go to the cross to bear the sins of his people. He knows exactly what is going to happen next. And yet he's in complete control. And he feels the weight of what he's going to do to bear the wrath of God. But the disciples, they're troubled because they're confused and they're afraid. They don't understand why Jesus would leave them. They have no idea what's going to happen next in contrast to Jesus, who knows exactly what's going on. These disciples are profoundly upset. They look at Jesus and they say, hold on, aren't you the Messiah? Aren't we going to take care of business and get this kingdom going right now? And Jesus says, I'm going to leave. They say, don't go. So Jesus unpacks the implications of his impending departure. And this is what he says to calm their hearts in the midst of deep distress. He says, you believe in God, believe also in me. Okay, imagine the scene here. Jesus looks at these men who eagerly desire to trust in God at this moment of intense confusion. And Jesus sees the doubt in their eyes. He, he essentially looks at them and he says this. He, he looks at them and says, Yes, dear brothers, I see that you desire to trust in God. I see, this, I, I see this desire and here's how you do that. Trust in me. How could Jesus say this? I want you to understand this. This is so critical for our understanding of who Jesus is. He is taking... The unique response that we should reserve only for God. Belief, trust, full surrender, full devotion and surrender. And he is applying it to himself. Do you see this? If he were not God the Son, this statement would be blasphemy. Believe in God. How do you do that? Believe also in me, he says. see, in the context of this conversation with his disciples, remember, here we are. They don't have the clarity we have as we look back to the cross and the resurrection. They're looking ahead to it in great confusion about who Jesus is. And so he's communicating this, that they still don't understand who he is and what he's doing. And these words are a claim to a unique divine nature, a unique demand for trust, and a unique reality that Jesus is worthy of worship. And yet, the disciples still don't quite get what's going on in this unique divine union of God the Father and God the Son. So, look at the response of Philip here. Look at the response of Philip. Jesus had just said in verse 7, If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. Okay, look at the text with me. If you really know me, you'll know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then Philip gives this very, uh, he gives this very pious Israelite reply in verse 8. Look at his reply. Lord, he says, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. This is reminiscent of Exodus chapter 33. If you remember back in the story of Moses and the Exodus of the Israelites, The Lord told Moses in Exodus 33, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then Moses replied with these words, Now show me your glory. And the Lord passed by Moses. As the Lord covered Moses' eyes with his hands so that Moses could not see the glory of God face to face because anyone who sees the Lord face to face will die, the text says. And yet here, Philip exclaims with the same sincerity and the same desire as Moses, we want to see the glory of God. And Jesus' response is so tender and so compassionate and yet so firm and to the point. He says, don't you see, Philip? You're seeing the glory of God right now. Whoa. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Wow! I just imagine the disciples at this moment, these, these pious Israelites, they sit there in stupefied awe at this statement. This is the most shocking thing about the Incarnation. The most radical claim, the most incredible truth that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he has fulfilled the ultimate sense of the promise to Moses that God's presence would be with us. Emmanuel, that we would have rest in Jesus because through his bloodshed on the cross, we can now enter the Holy of Holies and look on the face of God. Wow. C.S. Lewis um, He put it this way in his classic book, Mere Christianity. He says about this this moment, he says, Among the Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. He claims to forgive sins. He says that he has always existed. He says he's coming to judge the world at the end of time. When you have grasped that you will see that what this man said was quite simply the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. And yet, how could the glory of God be contained in this man, Jesus? It reminds me of 1 Kings chapter 8, the dedication of the temple when Solomon in verse 27, offers this prayer of dedication for the temple and wonders at how this earthly building could contain the God of heaven. And these are the words that he says in 1 Kings eight twenty-seven. But will God really dwell on the earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you, how much less this temple that I have built. Some of you know Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan theologian, he, he, um, it's been discovered in his personal Bible that he wrote in the margin of his Bible next to this verse, these words. If it was a thing so wonderful in Solomon's eyes, Such a marvelous instance of condescension for God to dwell on earth in the manner he did in the tabernacle and temple. How much greater and more wonderful was it for him to dwell with us as our Emmanuel in the manner he did in the human nature of Christ. Wow! Even that, the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem a thousand years earlier pointed to Jesus. This most shocking truth is that the eternal Son of God emptied himself by taking on human flesh, emptying by addition. That's what Philippians 2 is all about. He took on the full human nature and remained fully God in his full unity and mutual indwelling of the Father in the Son and the Son in the Father. And as we go through the rest of this chapter, next week, into chapter 14, we're going to see the triune God revealed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, one being in three persons. And, and, And as Jesus says in verse 11 of our text today, if you're having trouble believing that, he says, at least look at the proof of my works. He said, if you don't trust that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me, at least look at the miracles that have happened. Okay, these are the, just the ones from the Gospel of John. Jesus changes water into wine, communicating that cleansing from sin is now by his blood. He clears the temple courts and he says, this temple is my body. It, it, tear it down. I'll raise it in three days. I am now the presence of God, he says. He fed over 5,000 people. He is the bread of life. He walked on water. He has power over creation. He healed the royal official's son. He healed the paralytic, the blind man, and he raised Lazarus from the dead. He is the resurrection and the life. And he's about to die and rise from the grave to defeat sin and death and evil forever. Precisely because he's the only eligible substitute and sacrifice for us, fully human to die in our place, fully God to conquer death. As theologian Andrew Wilson puts it, he says to mediate properly between God and man, you would actually have to be both God and man. You got to connect those dots. This is the uniqueness of Jesus. He's the one with the Father that that makes the glory of God known to us in the incarnation, in his sinless life, his substitutionary death, his victorious resurrection, and his heavenly session. And in light of this, we need to talk about the exclusivity of Christ. Okay, We've been laying this groundwork of why Jesus is so unique. So go back to verse 5 with me and let's talk about the exclusivity of Jesus. Okay, go back to verse 5. I just love how how Thomas comments in the Gospels. When you see Thomas speaking, I just love this guy. He's a logical thinker. He's a very practical person. He often struggles to understand metaphors and symbolic language. Anybody else sometimes struggle to understand metaphors? Okay. You get this sense that Thomas is the kind of guy who foresees problems before other people do. He's like a logical thinker, an engineer kind of type, okay? So Thomas speaks up. Jesus says, I'm going to, he says, I'm going to heaven to prepare a place for you. And then I'm going to come back and bring you there. And Thomas goes, he gets very practical here. And he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? It's like, he's essentially saying, Jesus, I don't get it. Okay. Could you just give us the GPS coordinates or something? Just send me the Google map pin and then I'll be just fine. And I can get there. Like, if I know the destination, I can find the path. Now, what's fascinating in this text is that Jesus looks at them and says, you already know the place. We can see it in Philip's words later, that they crave the presence and glory of God. They want to be satisfied in the restfulness and assurance that they have a home in God's household, security as his children, a sense of purpose and direction, and who've received mercy and grace and now walk in his ways. In other words, they know where they want to aim. We want to see God. We want to know Him. And so Jesus makes the boldest and most exclusive claim in history in verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the sixth I am statement of Jesus. There's seven of them in the Gospel of John, so we're yet to encounter one of them. And I want to make sure that we're super clear on the background of these I am statements because it it plays especially importantly in this passage. Okay, the background of this is found in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14 when at the burning bush, Moses says to God, who am I supposed to say who sent me when I go back to, to Egypt? And God says this, I am who I am. That is what you're to tell the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This is where, and the very next verses describe this is where we get the name of God. The Lord, all caps in your Old Testament, is the tetragrammaton. It's four letters that are a cognate of and sound like the verb to be. In other words, the name of God is I am. That's his name. In other words, friends, God is. He just is. You want to know why he's so uh, uh, beyond everything and stands preexistent and eternal? He has sovereign power over everything. God's own name is I am. And Jesus, to use this phrase seven times, the perfect number, symbolically, in the gospel of John... Is purposeful to show that he is manifesting the very being of God in the flesh. In other words, friends, Jesus is. He has eternally existed and has sovereign power over everything. And this is what he unfolds, okay? There's three statements that he makes in this exclusivity of who he is. He says, I am the way, which means he is the path to be with God. He says, I'm the truth. I'm the revealer of truth from God. And he says, I am the life. I am the life giver. Life is in me. See, what I want you to see here is that Jesus doesn't just know the way. He didn't discover the way and want to show us what the way is. He says... I am the way. So he doesn't just know it. He hasn't found it. He says he is the way. Jesus is not merely blazing a trail for us to follow as though he's found the right path to God. He is the way. This has been pondered for generations. This incredible truth. There's a a classic book that's called The Imitation of Christ. That was written by Thomas A. Kempis in 1418. And this is what he says about this statement from John 14:6. Thou follow me, as though Jesus is speaking here. I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which thou must follow, the truth which thou must believe, the life for which thou must hope. I am the invaluable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I am the straightest way, the sovereign truth, life true, life blessed, life uncreated. Friends, what we have to grasp is that now that Jesus has come as the culminating revelation of God, it is totally inadequate to claim to know God while disowning Christ. In other words, the test of whether or not someone knows God lies in their response to the supreme revelation of God, Jesus Christ himself. He says, the only way is me. This is why the final expression of the exclusivity in this passage, I'm going to skip now to the end of our passage. The exclusivity comes in that verse 6, but then it also shows up when it has to do with how we relate to God now. Because we relate to God through Jesus, even in things like prayer. Go to verses 13 and 14. These verses connect back to that theology of, chapter, or, uh, of verses 6 and 7. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Therefore now, prayer is through Jesus. Notice the important nuances here. Jesus has revealed his ministry as the resurrected king, ascended to his throne. He's looking ahead and he's saying, I'm going to reign over a kingdom and you're going to be the first fruits." And this is called Christ's heavenly session. That's the term that we use. In other words, he is the mediator for us at the right hand of the Father. And then he says that we ask for things. We we ask in his name. This is incredibly important, friends, because... It relates to how we access God and the power by which prayer accomplishes anything. Okay, it's about that Jesus is the only way. So if you want to pray, we pray in the name of Jesus. He is our mediator and our high priest. But it also relates to the power of prayer. Because what you need to know is in the ancient world, a royal name invokes power and authority. It's not a magical incantation. It's not like a button you push in a vending machine. It's not not like a a magical phrase that you have to tack on to the end of your prayer or it doesn't count. Rather, praying in Jesus' name is an acknowledgement that you're praying under his authority and lordship. His power. I want you to notice here in these short verses the purpose of prayer. It's so that the Father would be glorified in the Son. And then lastly, that he uses some specific words here in verse 14. He says, you may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. So, let me ask you a question about prayer. Who do we pray to? Do we pray to the Father? Or do we pray to the Son? Or do we pray to the Holy Spirit? It's a trick question. (laughs) What is Proper in our view of prayer is that we pray to the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet, Jesus here says, you can ask me, so is it proper, is it improper to pray in Jesus, to, to Jesus? No. We, we sometimes, and you'll catch it even in, in sometimes how I pray, you'll Pray an address to to God, our Father. And then it's like you can sort of oscillate in that prayer to to, to lifting up praise to Jesus and then then ask the Holy Spirit to work in someone's life and then come back to praise our glorious Father. And we pray in that way because we pray to the Father in the name of the Son and the power of the Spirit. Now, I find it fascinating to hear Jesus says you can ask for anything. Really? (laughs) Anything? Now, just to like button that up for a moment. Okay, this does not mean anything, anything. Of course, it does not mean Jesus is the vending machine. We get to just ask whatever we want and then it's going to pop out, right? So we pray in accord with God's will and with an understanding that we want to see his good plan and his good purposes come to fruition, even if it's not our preferred way or our preferred timing. So here's what I just want to close with. There's lots more we could talk about about this with prayer. But what Jesus invites us to in this passage is full surrender to him, the way, the truth, and the life. And then to live daily in a posture of prayer, knowing that because of the uniqueness of who he is, and the exclusivity of coming to him in order to know God, that we can be fully dependent on him and bring our requests to him and articulate in our hearts. It's, it's like this song that was impressed in my heart this week. There's a song called, I Love You, Lord, and this is how it goes. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Let's pray. Lord, enliven us today with this uniqueness of who you are and the exclusivity of who you are as Lord, as our Savior. There are so many claims to things that could satisfy us, save us, that would draw our attention and ask our hearts devotion Lord, but we want to only be under, or saved by you and under your lordship and follow you wholeheartedly. Lord, teach us how to do that. Impress upon us our deep dependence on you that we know that in order to commune with you we come through you Jesus, our high priest and that we pray our Heavenly Father, in the name of the Son, in the power of the Spirit, these words in Jesus' name. Amen.